The new year is here, and for many of you, that means new personal goals and maybe just maybe even a few house projects. If your furnace is on that list of projects to tackle, let Aquarius Home Services help you. Right now, they're offering $98 off any furnace repair. That's $98 off of any furnace repair. Their heating and cooling technicians are experts at troubleshooting and repairing any and all types of furnace-related issues. Start the new year off right and stay warm and cozy this winter season. Aquarius believes in earning the right to be recommended, and I recommend them. They're just a click away at AquariusHomeServices.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Do North Outdoors podcast. I am Natalie Dillon, your single host for today. My co-host, Travis Frank, is out. And actually, Brandon, producer, I'm just remembering. Last time I was out, he made a ridiculous, hilarious story about where I was. I should have came prepared. But I know. he He's, <laughs> yes, something <laughs> along those lines. Unfortunately, I'm not prepared, and I just have to let you know. He's just out sick today. He doesn't have a voice. So it's myself and a guest who you will meet in a moment who I'm very excited to talk to today. Um, this conversation is something that if you've listened to the podcast before, you know Travis and I are typically very excited about foraging. We've talked about morel mushrooms. We've talked about some fall foraging. But today, believe it or not, we are going to be talking about winter foraging. And if you live anywhere around us, Minnesota, upper Midwest, it probably feels like winter is starting to drag on a little bit. We're kind of in those in-between temperatures. It's very much still winter, but some of the activities that many of us love doing are little bit more challenging as it kind of starts to warm up and get icy. So this idea of winter foraging is something that we're excited about learning more about today. Great activity to carry us through the rest of the winter, and we hope you enjoy. So without further ado, I want to introduce our guest today, Maria Westerly. Did I say your last name right, Maria? Perfect. Okay, yes. great. So Maria is a educator, blogger behind Four Seasons Foraging based right here in Minneapolis. Maria, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah. And I'll just say it's four season foraging. That's a common, I should have just named it four seasons (laughs) foraging, I guess, because more people say it that way, but (laughs) I didn't do my research. I put in an extra S and we'll definitely link. We'll at the end of the show too, we'll share, you know, where people can connect with you because you have so much information out there. And actually the the way that I first got in contact with you, or the, the first time that I found your content, I was doing research for our fall foraging show. And I'd like seen your your stuff pop up before, but that's the first time I started digging in and realizing that you have videos, you have blog posts and that you're right here in Minneapolis. So yep. I knew I had to reach out. So oh, glad to be here. We'll learn a lot from you today, but before we kind of jump in, I'd love to hear for all of us to learn your background. You're, you know, an expert forager among other things. I know you've been doing it for a long time, but can I give us an idea of how you got into this and how this became a passion of yours? Yeah, I have been doing this for a long time. Started in like 2004. Um, So back then I was a little freshman in college and at the University of Minnesota studying natural resources, kind of jumping between different majors. But my real interest was basically homesteading, like living out in the woods and wanting to find a way to live more sustainably and have more of a direct connection with the land. So, yeah, I just, I mean, honestly, I just stopped going to my classes (laughs) and got a few field guides and I would just like hang out in the woods. I was living in the St. Paul campus. So there's like some nice parks around there. And I would just go into the woods every day with a little field guide and study up and, you know, nibble on things here and there. Um, Yeah. And then after that, I actually dropped out and traveled around the country for a bit with some friends of mine and would go to like traditional skills gatherings, um, conventions, things like that. And yeah, learned a lot, definitely mostly learning on my own or with my friends, but sometimes, you know, learning from other teachers. Um, This was, you know, almost 20 years ago, so there wasn't all the great resources that you see today. Um, But still, it was nice just to be out in the woods and like, learn it by doing it. So yeah, so you very much learned, as you said, by doing it, you're, you know, getting out there and experiencing it yourself. Um, I'm curious too. you. 
so you've done, you know, you mentioned you, you've read books, you've gone out there and kind of learned hands on, but I, I also saw in your bio, you have some certifications too. Is that something, tell us about that process. Yeah. Um, I think that, well, I have the mushroom certification. Mm-hmm. So the Minnesota Mycological Society does these mushroom classes, I think a few times a year where you can get certified to harvest. There's like a list of species that they consider you know, safe enough for everybody to learn to harvest and to sell in the marketplace. Um, so it includes like morels, chicken of the woods. There's two separate classes and they each cover different species. So I took both those classes. And you can go to other states and get certified in more mushrooms as well, especially if you want to sell in other states, then you need to do that. But in Minnesota, it's a list of maybe like, I want to say around 10 species. Okay. And so that's for you to be able to sell them, not so much to be able to train other people or to take people out. Right, right. It's all about selling them. And I don't actually even sell them. (laughs) So I mostly just got them so I can say like, hey, look, I know these mushrooms. Um, But it was still like a great process and to, you know, meet the people and be in the mycological society is really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned morels and chicken of the woods. Obviously, morels is like the superstar we've we've (laughs) talked about on this podcast a bunch. Um, Travis... I mean, he, he gets hundreds and hundreds, I think every year I'm usually like pumped about like the nine that I find. Um, but I just found chicken of the woods this year for the first time. Oh, amazing. So, yeah. I was really exciting. I had never tried it. I'd never looked for, um, um, but I cooked them up and I, that's, I thought that it was going to be much more like a mushroom mm-hmm. and people said it tastes like chicken. I'm like, I doubt it. I think that's <laughs> something people just say. And I couldn't believe it when I was eating it. I was like, yes, this feels like I'm eating a meat, like a white yes. meat. Yes. I really love chicken of the woods and hen of the woods too is another one that is very meaty and has that like really great texture. Okay. And yeah, for me, I mean, I know a lot of people associate mushrooms with like the slimy kind of texture and they don't like that. So I really recommend to people who have those textural issues to try chicken of the woods or hen of the woods because it's a lot. Yeah. Like you're saying, it's very meaty and you can even like, you know, make chicken nuggets or like you know, crispy chicken sandwiches or that kind of thing. Like you could really just treat it like chicken. Yeah. Well, I want to pick your brain about all things foraging and, and start talking about all this summer and spring and fall mushrooms and stuff. But of course, as, as I mentioned, we're in the middle of winter here and I know some people are going to be eager to learn about what they can do right now. So I guess while, while we're talking about mushrooms, are there mushrooms that a person can find in the upper Midwest in, in, in wintertime? There are, um, like not mushrooms that you can just eat as they Mm -hmm. are. Like it's mushrooms that you want to make a tea out of or a tincture, Mm -hmm. like the medicinal type of mushrooms. So like chaga is one that's been really gaining in popularity. And that's like, it kind of looks like a burl, you know, it's this like black kind of woody looking growth on birch trees. Mm -hmm. Um, so especially up North, you find that a lot. And Um, I have read some, there's some like sustainability concerns, like maybe it's being over harvested. Mm. So just be aware of that. Like, um, you know, do some research around it and don't pick like every single chaga you see. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it does have some medicinal qualities that people really seek out. And I think it tastes good. Like it has kind of a roasty, I want to say coffee-like flavor, but mm-hmm. then I don't want people to think it's going to taste like coffee and it doesn't. Um. <laughs> it's like the dandelion root coffee. It's like it kind of tastes like coffee, but not really. Have yeah. you ever had that? Yes. I have, yes. yes. And I yes. do like that drink a lot, mm-hmm. but I feel like, yeah, it's kind of like the chocolate carob thing where you're like expecting a substitute for something and it's kind of, but not really. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm so glad you mentioned chaga because that's something I forgot that it even is a mushroom because it doesn't really look like it, but it's definitely something that I wanted to talk about today. So we can for sure talk a little bit more about kind of the, the uses and, and why people love it and would want to, would want to gather it. But, um, I guess, can you give us a rundown if somebody wants to go try to find chaga, what they look for and kind of some tips on how they might find it and, and harvest it? Yeah. So it always grows on birch. So you need to find a birch stand. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that can be a little tricky. Uh, further south in Minnesota around here. But of course, there's tons of birch up north. Um, And then it just grows like right out of the side of the tree. How high up is it? Does it vary? It varies. Yeah. Sometimes it's within reach. Sometimes it's like 10 feet up the tree and you have to 
you know, get a letter or just leave it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And yeah, it's a very hard growth. So usually mushrooms like, you know, morels, chicken of the woods, uh, hen of the woods, all these other mushrooms, chanterelles, they're all the fruiting body of the mushroom. Mm. So it's kind of like the apple of the tree. But chaga isn't actually the fruiting body. It's, um, I want to say it's a mass of mycelium. I should maybe look that up to make sure I'm remembering correct. Brandon, get on it. (laughs) He helped us look up all sorts of things about mushrooms on an earlier podcast. Yeah, there's a special term for it, like a glorium or something like that. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, it's not really what you would expect with a typical mushroom. Mm -hmm. So you need something like an axe or like a big knife to get it off the tree usually because it is so tough. Um, So come prepared with that. Mm -hmm. And an axe can also help you like if it's a little bit high, it can kind of help you or like a little saw or something like that. Um, Okay. So you were talking about harvesting it. Is it pretty, so I've had like for how I actually take a supplement that has chaga in it. I've had oh. chaga tea, but I've never harvested it myself. And I think I've seen it before, but I've never like checked. I've been like, I think that that's chaga, but I've never, you know, followed through and, and done the what I would need to do to actually harvest it. But so is it pretty, like, is it pretty firm, pretty hard? It is pretty hard. Okay. Yeah. It's got like a very like woody, like dense, hard kind mm-hmm. of structure. And, um, there's actually, <laughs> there's like a meme going around of like beginning foragers when they like think they find chaga and it's like a burl on a tree, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. you know, That's probably um, what I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. mean, yeah, it can be confusing because sometimes like there are just actual woody growths, like mm-hmm. actual wood that looks similar to chaga, but it's not chaga. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, chaga will be like almost black on the outside and have kind of a warty cracked kind of appearance. Mm. Um, yeah, I recommend looking up pictures. It's pretty distinctive. So once you like from a distance, you might not be able to tell, like, is that a burl? Is that chaga? But when you get closer, you should definitely be able to see the difference. Okay. And is this something that you forage for much, um, in a soak? Can you talk about your experience harvesting it and then what you do next with it once you get it home? Yeah. So I do harvest it a bit. I used to live in Northern rural Michigan and harvested a lot more around there. Um, but yeah, when I make it like a little further North, I'll often find Mm -hmm. it and I do have like a little chunk at home. Um, and yeah, like I said, it's really hard. So you, you want to like mash it up. I recommend using like a hammer. Um, you could, try if you have like a Vitamix or really high speed blender, you could try putting in there, but Mm -hmm. probably it will like dull the blades pretty badly because it is very tough. So yeah, I would recommend like using a hammer or like a very heavy duty mortar and pestle kind Mm -hmm. of thing to mash it. And then you just do like you boil the heck out of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And you can actually strain it and then reboil it because it's hard to get all the constituents out in the first boiling process because it is so tough. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can get two batches out of one hunk of chaga. Yeah. Or you can do like a tincturing too with like a high um, spray you know, alcohol spirit. Mm -hmm. How would, if, if somebody's boiling it at home, how would they know that they did get the, the goods, the nutrients out of it? Does it, is the water going to change color? Is it going to, is that going to be an indicator? Oh yeah. The water will be like, it'll be like coffee color. Yeah. Yeah. Like almost black, like dark, dark brown. Yeah. (laughs) So some people listening might think, why would I want to drink or eat something that is black and hard and there's a growth <laughs> on the side of a tree. And you can probably answer this better than I can, but I know, um, I mean, th- this is a, a substance that's been used really for thousands of years in Chinese medicine. I know I, ha- you know, take it because it's what many would call an adaptogen. It can help your body, um, handle stress. It's good for lowering blood sugar and, uh, helps your liver function immunity. There's a lot of cool studies out there that people can look into of why it's good. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, why would somebody drink it? You know, green tea or something like that. It might not be, depending on your taste, it might not be like the most, it's not like getting a, a morel mushroom. It might not be the most delicious thing, but it can be good for health benefits. Um, are there other reasons why people might want to harvest it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it has so many health benefits. I 
do like the flavor. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's going to depend on the person, but I like mushroom flavors. I like like dark, bitter, kind of roasty flavors. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, for me, I think it's really tasty. If you don't love the flavor, you can try adding some like milk or cream or like mm-hmm. cream or substitute, whatever you like using, um, you know, some honey syrup. You could kind of do like a chai kind of thing, like a, you know, dirty chai. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds good. Yeah, I think it's really good. Yeah. Um, And yeah, the immunity is a big one with chaga. Um, And I'm not sure if chaga is used like in traditional Chinese medicine. You might be thinking of reishi. Reishi too. I think it is. I mean, somebody could fact check me, but I believe it is. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of those. We don't have reishi around here, do we? We do. Yeah. Um, It's hard to find around here. There's a reishi that grows on hemlock trees. Okay. And hemlock is endangered in the state because we're like at the far western range of it. Mm -hmm. So you don't see a lot of hemlocks, but there's, it's called Ganoderma tsuga is the Latin name um, that you can find growing up north. But yeah, there's other species of reishi that grow around the country. Okay. So lots of medicinal mushrooms that we have right, right here or nearby. Yes. Um, are there, I guess I I could keep rifling off, uh, things that I've been excited to learn about, but let me ask you what, what are some of your favorite things to forage for this time of year or what's next? Yeah. Well, one of my favorite winter forageables is the hackberry. Mm. So this is like a really common tree. It's native to the Eastern U S So you'll find it, you know, growing in forests and stuff, but it's really commonly planted in boulevards and parks and landscapes, people's Mm -hmm. yards. Like it is all over the Twin Cities. Is the tree a hackberry tree? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. What does it look like if you're walking past it? So one of the most distinctive things about it is the bark. Like I like to say that it kind of looks like someone took a hatchet and like hacked up the bark um, because it's very corky. It's very warty and it will help you distinguish it from a distance because it is like just so unique looking. Okay. Um, Looking it up right now. Yeah. And then, I mean, the leaves aren't out right now, of course, but when the leaves are out, they're like a heart shaped leaf and the, um, so the, where the top of the heart is, that's asymmetrical. So that's where the leaf stem comes out. So like one of the lobes is higher than the other. And then they have serrated edges. And one really common thing with the hackberry leaves, it's so common that you can almost, uh, use it as an identification feature, even though it's not always on there, but they often have those little galls. So those mm-hmm. little, they look kind of like little warts on the leaf that are created by insects when they lay their eggs in there it creates like a little home for the insect okay. larva i've always um, wondered what that is so that's nothing wrong with the tree i mean or is it? i guess i mean i don't know how much it hurts the tree like i hackberry will sometimes just be like covered in these mm-hmm. and the tree seems fine mm-hmm. <laughs> so i don't know that it's actually doing any harm um but yeah they'll just be like these little kind of warty lumps on there and mm-hmm. eventually like a little bug will crawl its way mm-hmm. out when it's ready. Yeah. Um, so nature's miracles. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you harvest the berry. Yes. So it has, um, so it's not technically a berry. You can call it a berry. I call it a berry. It looks like a berry, but it's a droop or a stone fruit. So more similar to like a cherry or an apricot mm-hmm. um, where it has like a thin layer of pulp and then a really thick pit on the inside. And the cool thing about hackberry, um, I like to call this real paleo food. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you're on the paleo diet, you can eat this, um, even though it won't fall into paleo standards, but it's actual paleo food because it was found in paleolithic caves in Turkey. Like this is something that's been feeding humans for a long, wow. long time, like since the dawn of humanity. And the cool thing about it, um, what you want to do when you eat it, uh, (laughs) sorry, I think I hit the microphone. (laughs) Um, what you want to do when you eat it is crunch through that pit and eat the whole thing. So some people say to think of it more as a nut because the majority of the berry is the nut part. Like Mm -hmm. it's just a thin layer of pulp in there. But the pulp is actually very, very sweet. So it is similar to like dates. Mm -hmm. Um, 
or figs, like, mm-hmm. and it has a similar consistency to dates as well. So um, I also always warn people, like, if you have sensitive teeth or delicate dental work and it just feels too hard, like, don't push it, yeah. you know, like, do what feels comfortable for you. Because, yeah, in my classes, I always like having people chomp on it. But some people are like, oh, no, like, yeah. I can't. Reminds me um, like pomegranate seeds or something. Obviously, a, a different type of thing, but mm-hmm. it can surprise you. you know, inside. <laughs> so are you supposed to? Is it better? Is it like a digestive reason that you would actually want to, like, bite through the... Uh, the seed or the pit inside? Well, it's because the seed is edible Mm -hmm. and it has all the like fat and protein and minerals in there. And if you just try to process off or to like scrape off with your teeth, just the pulp layer, that's just really inefficient because it's just a very thin layer there. Mm -hmm. And you are throwing away what is like arguably the most nutritious part of the hackberry, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is the seed and the inside. Um, Yeah. So if you don't like that, uh, like chomping through it, you can grind it up in a high speed blender or mash it up with a mortar and pestle. Um, if you don't have a mortar and pestle, you could use like rocks or a hammer or something. Um, and there's also recipes like it kind of has a gritty texture because of that. The shell fragments like don't like they stay in there, you know, so that, that creates like kind of a sandy gritty texture. Mm-hmm. So if you don't like that, you can do like a hackberry milk out of it. Um, there's also a recipe that I have not tried, but Alan Burgo forager chef makes like mm-hmm. a kind of candy out of it by drying it and sifting out the tasty parts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So this, what color is this berry? Is it black? Or red. So when it ripens, it's like a dark brown, like purplish kind of color. Okay. And it's a late fall berry. So okay. it'll ripen usually like mid-August, late August. But it's actually easier to harvest. So it's like a really dry consistency. Mm-hmm. Like when people think of berries, you usually think of something really juicy, like a blueberry or strawberry. But this is, again, more like a date. So it doesn't ferment on the tree. Like it stays good mm-hmm. all year. Um Sometimes there's like little bugs that eat out the pulp. So uh, that's the main thing to be aware of. But besides that, like you can harvest it. I've seen it on the tree as late as like May of the next year. So it's a lot easier to harvest when the leaves are off. So picking it during the winter is really great. Yeah, smart. And probably if there's not too many people in your neighborhood that go foraging for them, they should be left over. Yes, Um, there's so many. Are there precautions obviously you know with finding berries in the wild um are there like lookalikes or things that people should be aware of from a safety or precautionary standpoint i mean from a safety standpoint yes um i mean in general when you're foraging there's things to be aware of with hackberry i mean if it's a full-grown tree with small round like maroon colored berries there's nothing else around here like that um like buckthorn is really common but that's a shrub Mm -hmm. and that has more like a black blue colored berry and if you eat a buckthorn berry you will immediately know (laughs) not to eat it because it tastes horrible (laughs) yes (laughs) spit that out (laughs) exactly Mm -hmm. so buckthorn uh is a cathartic like it'll make you puke if you eat too much of it but um you really shouldn't be confusing the two if you're paying attention at all to the identification features. Um, but yeah, another thing that you could be aware of is like contamination issues mm-hmm. um, with like fruits and nuts. It's less of a concern. Like if you're picking something like leaves or roots that are really close to the ground or in the ground, then there's a greater contamination concern. Cause usually the contaminant is like, in the ground, you know, like mm-hmm. heavy metals or um, like toxic chemicals or maybe some bacteria you don't want from like dog poop or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely something to keep in mind. But with hackberries, like usually they're like way up high yeah. um, and it's not as much of a concern. But you can one of the things that you can do to avoid contamination is just to give the things you harvest like a good rinse like you don't need to use any kind of um like veggie wash or anything like that those aren't actually more effective than just plain potable water but like giving it a good rinse under running water like dunking it in clean uh like a basin of clean water will go a long way because usually when you're ingesting contaminants it's because there's dust on the outside Mm -hmm. 
that's contaminated, usually it's not. Even though it does sometimes happen, but usually the plant itself isn't absorbing the contamination. Yeah, that's that's good to know and good advice, especially considering the fact that probably a lot of people that if you are foraging for this, it's going to be in a in a populated area. It's not going to be in the middle of a, you know, pristine wood necessarily up north or something like that. So right, good right. to know that it's give it a good wash and you yep. should be good to go. Yep. Cool. So we've talked about chaga and some other fungi. Yes. We got hackberry. Mm-hmm. What else can people find this time of year? Well, the only green thing really <laughs> that you find this time of year is evergreens. Mm-hmm. So looking for conifers like spruces, pines, cedar, juniper. Um, those are all great options for foraging. Um, there is, what do you do with them? Well, <laughs> yeah. Like how much time do we have? <laughs> oh, there's like all the time in the world. Um, so you can really pick them any time of year. Um, a lot of people like usually the most popular time to pick them is in the spring because there's the young growth, like the spruce tips, uh, is usually what people go for that come out, which are like a really light green color and they have more of a soft texture. So you know how, uh, conifer needles, they'll develop that like waxy. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, when they're young, they don't have that yet. And it'll have more of a citrus-like flavor rather than the like resinous kind of bitter flavor. Mm-hmm. So yeah, spruce tips are amazing. Um, the tips of any edible evergreen you can harvest and eat. Spruce tips is what I have most experience with. Um, How do you prepare it? So lots of options there. <laughs> uh, if you get it young enough and it's tender enough, you can just like chop them up and toss them on like salad or, you know, use it as a garnish, use it as a seasoning, put it on soup or whatever. Um, but usually people do infusions. So like I've done a lot of infusions into maple syrup. Um, I've done cream infusions and then you can like make ice cream with it. Uh, the sound of that. Yes. Spruce ice cream is amazing. Mm, <laughs> it's I've like, got to look into that. Yes. I highly recommend it. Like, it really, I'm like the weirdo that's always like, I do like the pistachio ice cream and all like the random ones. Yes. So this is right up my alley. <laughs> Same here. Yeah. yeah. Even outside of what I've tried. So okay. <laughs> spruce ice cream. You heard it here first. Um, have you ever heard of, <clears throat> I'm trying to remember, it was a social media account that I followed that it's either in, it was like Sweden or Finland or somewhere up that direction that was talking about from that country, um, like forest water. I remember this girl was going around and she was, taking, I think, um, you know, parts of various evergreen trees that had fallen to the ground and collecting them, I think cleaning them and just like soaking them in water. Have you come across that? Oh, I have not seen that. It seems Um, like a very simple way to do it, but I think it's one of those things just like you might see, you know, cucumber water or something like that. Yeah. Just letting them infuse in water and drinking it. I think just kind of for the flavor. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I will usually do like a tea with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so like this time of year, um, since the growth is older and tougher, like it's not something you want to just, typically it's not something you want to just like sprinkle on a cookie or mm-hmm. on, <laughs> you know, a salad or something. Cause it's like got a weird texture, but yeah, you can do infusions. So like tea, um, I do a lot of vinegar infusions. You can do it in simple syrup or alcohol. You know, there's all kinds mm-hmm. of options. Um, so yeah, I haven't tried just putting it in like plain cold water, but and I can see she boiled it and then cooled it. Okay, I think it was definitely consumed chilled. But, okay, nice, um, cool. So yeah. mostly infusions, sweets, and is there anything to do? So it's all, it's all the needles that we're talking about and the young needles. Any other parts of the trees that that people forage for? Yeah. So the young needles have like more of that citrusy flavor, Mm -hmm. but, um, the older needles are usually what's used for like medicinal purposes. So like there's studies with white pine and I'm assuming it's probably similar for the other evergreens as well, but the young needles have less vitamin C than the older Mm -hmm. needles and the older needles have like I mean, it varies, but around like three to four times the vitamin C of an orange by weight. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> a lot less sugar, I'm guessing. Yes. Yeah. A lot less sugar. Yeah. <laughs> Not really yeah. much sugar in a yeah. pine needle. Um, so vitamin C is like heat. Uh, it's like, it's destroyed by heat. So if you do, like I do a lot of pine vinegar infusions and that way the vitamin C, because it's a cold infusion, it is preserved. Um, but yeah, if you want to like make a tea, it's good for a sore throat. It's good for mm-hmm clearing um phlegm out of the lungs like good for bronchial problems Mm -hmm. so yeah like the older needles are fine to use too they're just like have more of a kind of resinous bitter flavor um and then i mean the cones in some instances like juniper berries Mm -hmm. for example those little blue they look like berries but they're technically modified cones okay um so juniper is what flavors gin Mm -hmm. so yeah (laughs) you're probably familiar with the flavor uh so you can make like a diy gin by infusing it in a neutral spirit Uh um i do like a lot of butter infusions like grinding it up and mixing it with softened butter um yeah, I mean, I made it a dry rub actually. Yeah, Charlie, our other producer here today, was there for it. Uh, dry rub for meat with you know various spices, but including some ground juniper berries. And it's funny, of course, I got them from the store, and I could have just <laughs> gone outside and gotten them. So, yeah, cool. yeah, and juniper. Um, I don't know. Juniper is really great. Um, there are like a few landscape varieties that you Mm -hmm. might want to avoid like i've been meaning to dig more into this research but it sounds like like sometimes when you read up on juniper people will say like oh don't eat too much because it's mildly toxic like Mm -hmm. it can give you kidney problems but then the preliminary research i've been doing indicates that it's just like certain species that have that quality and um like it's European varieties that you find around here in like yards and in front of businesses mm-hmm. and places like that. So the two varieties that are definitely safe to eat are common juniper and okay. Eastern red cedar. Um, and then the other ones, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, try your own risk. Would you recommend people if they're interested in harvesting their own? Is there, do you recommend like just getting a field guide or are there other resources that, that you know of that can help people know that they're, you know, targeting the right variety? You can check my website. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, field guides. Um, I don't even know if the landscape varieties are in field guides because okay. usually yeah. they just talk about like the the kinds you find in the wild. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're the way I found out about this was through a website called Latifah's Herbs, and she has an article about toxic junipers, okay. so people could look that up. Um, yeah, I have an article on my blog about like identifying different types of junipers. Um, we'll link to your, your blog for sure in the, in the show notes below. So people can check there too. Great. Yeah. Great. Oh, and also I'm going to have a webinar coming up, um, about edible evergreens. I have one coming up in February that's sold out, but then I'm planning another one for March. Awesome. Cool. We'll definitely stay tuned for announcements on that. Can I join? (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I have a, a lot of questions that I'll, you know, still want to learn about after today. So I'll check that out. Um, I do want to, I want to make sure we save some time to talk more about some of your, your resources and things, but let's say maybe one or two more things that are out there right now for people in the upper Midwest. If there are, I imagine I like even all of this, it's like people think, Oh, in the winter, you know, what's nothing's growing, but it's fascinating even just to realize that there's, that there's, some things and in fact many things that people can forage for right now totally yeah are there other categories that we haven't talked about yeah so um well i do want to say quick about the evergreens Mm -hmm. too that there is a toxic evergreen u y-e-w and that's like very common mostly you find it in front of businesses it's like a little hedge that people trim into like little box shapes okay um but it is a native tree so you'll find it like a tree slash small like a small tree slash large shrub. (laughs) Um, Mm. So you'll find it like growing in the wild too. Um, So you want to make sure that you, you're not eating any part of that. So the only part of that that's edible, this is the one that has the little red berries. Yeah. Okay. Which again are not technically berries, but whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) We won't please you here. It's okay. It's helpful. That's what we call them. So, yeah. 
So the berries, the flesh of the berry is the only part that's edible, but there's a seed in the berry and that has actually the highest concentration of the toxin. Um, and what it has, it's called taxine. It's a cardiac depressant. So it is something that could kill you if you yeah. eat too much of it. Yeah. Good to know. Mm-hmm. And that's what, you know, we, we didn't start this episode talking about it. I think that m- most of our listeners are familiar with it at this point, but with all of this stuff, like any kind of foraging safety has to be your number one, you know, concern. The first thing we always say, don't eat anything unless you're absolutely certain that you know what it is. And there are so many resources out there, places like your blog and, and books and things where people can find so much information. And I think it's great for, you know, if you're ever unsure, if you're new into something, go with an expert your first time or, you know, take your, your friend who's, who's foraged for that thing a million times. So do you take people out on excursions? I do. Okay. Yes. Yes. I have classes mostly from May through October, but also during the winter. Okay. Um, And information on that would be on your blog too. Yep. It's all on my website. Okay. Your website. Yeah. 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 Um, great. So what's the next category? Do you (laughs) find roots this time of year? Um, I mean, the roots are technically there, but mm. with the soil freezing, it's not really possible to get at them. Like okay. if you're in a climate that's more mild, where you're further south, you could dig things like, you know, dandelion or burdock or wild parsnip or whatever mm. during the winter. But um, Do we have ginger root around here? We have wild ginger, yeah. which is like, the taste is a little similar to the store-bought ginger, but they're not related at okay. all. Yeah. Uh, and wild ginger is like a native woodland plant. Okay. Yep. Does it look like, I think I've seen ginger growing, but like down South and is it like striped up here? Like the green and white striped leaves or sorry, green and yellow striped leaves. Or is that, is that different? I might be taking us down a different. So I know that I've seen ginger growing in like Florida and Louisiana and stuff. You're like, Oh, that's ginger. You mean like I'm wild like, ginger or okay. it maybe, maybe it's not. The, the type that we'd have up here. Maybe but. it's like escaped cultivated ginger okay. or something. Wild ginger like has like a heart shaped so. leaf. Okay. And it's kind of like a fuzzy texture and the flowers are really small and they have this kind of like putrid, um, <laughs> this like rotten flesh color because they're uh, pollinated by flies. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Again, nature. It's always interesting. <laughs> always surprises us. Um, Okay. So things like dandelion roots and other things you might find, it might be easier to harvest in the fall or in the spring. Yes. Yes. Definitely recommend doing it um, outside of the, like in the thawing periods. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or pre-thaw. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what else in the winter? Yeah. So I did recently just pick some Kentucky coffee tree beans which I haven't actually ever tried eating these before, so I'm excited to give it a shot. But Kentucky coffee tree, it's another native tree, but it is planted more and more in like parks and boulevards, places like that. And you do see it a lot in Minneapolis and it's pretty distinctive. Like it has this like chubby bean on it. (laughs) Um, There's a few things you might mistake it with, like black locust, honey locust, catalpa, all make beans, but those Mm -hmm. are all a lot like narrower and skinnier. Um, Whereas the, this one, the Kentucky coffee tree bean, it almost looks like a flat mango kind of like it's, it's a lot chunkier. Mm -hmm. Um, And those stay on the tree through the winter. So I just picked some like last week (laughs) and I want to try um, what you do with them is you roast them and do again, like a coffee, like beverage. That's, you know, where the name of the tree comes from. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So it isn't actually related to coffee, but has that reminiscent of a coffee flavor. Yeah. Not related to coffee. um, No caffeine, Mm -hmm. but supposedly a similar flavor, probably you know, much like the dandelion coffee thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, well, we've certainly learned a lot that will hopefully inspire people to get out and look for some of these things. And I'd love to hear your, you know, your word of encouragement for somebody that maybe is newer into foraging. Maybe they've tried like a, you know, morale or maybe not um, and are unsure if it's worth it to go out into you know, the Minnesota or Wisconsin, wherever they're listening to into the cold in the winter to go out to forage for something. What would be your word of encouragement for people to try it? Or even for you personally, 
what excites you specifically to forage in the wintertime? Yeah, I definitely encourage people to do it. Um, I mean, I understand the desire to just like snuggle in and get cozy <laughs> during the winter. <laughs> so like definitely do that stuff too. But um, I feel like getting outside every day is a really great way to like stay connected to the surrounding landscape and to see the changes happening because there are, even though like winter is long, like there are changes, like even now, I mean, it's starting to feel more spring-like even though we're in February and there's just like little minor things happening with like the birds and, you know, (laughs) um, there are certainly, I was realizing that, sorry to, to take us on a tangent here, but I was standing outside the other day and it was just like the amount of birds singing right now. Like it's, yes. I, like it, I always notice it right around this time every year where it's like, oh, days are getting longer, more birds singing. Yep. But we, we still have some winter ahead of us. So. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um. So like just getting more of a sense of like what's happening in the landscape, I think is really powerful when you're foraging. Um, You know, I think there's also mental health benefits to getting outside and interacting with the non-human environment. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, I think it tastes good. So like, I think that's a really big reason to do it is uh, the taste, the the medicinal aspects, Mm -hmm. like those are all great. And especially with, you know, inflation and like potential food shortages and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. I think foraging can be a really important resource. And I mean, it is currently a really important resource to a lot of people, but I think there's even more potential there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also want to say like, you know, the, there's some fear around like the misidentification and, you know, accidentally hurting yourself or poisoning yourself and really like, it's actually hard to do that as long as you're attempting to identify something like most misidentifications aren't actually misidentifications. It's just like, and there's no attempt made to actually identify. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, almost everybody, (laughs) probably almost everybody who has access to who's listening to this has access to the internet. Um, so like look it up, uh, Minnesota wildflowers.info is a really great, um, identification resource. You know, there's like Facebook groups around foraging. I moderate one called, what is it called? Minnesota foragers, I think <laughs> foraging in Minnesota, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, you know, there's iNaturalist, there's lots of different resources, you know, there's apps, like some of these things aren't super great. Like, uh, you know, the apps and the iNaturalist, you don't want to depend on 100% of the time. But regardless, um, it's easy to find resources, go to your library, get a field guide, you know, Um, it's easy to find resources to identify plants. So if you're not sure if something is edible or that it's the exact plant that you think it is like, just don't eat it. You know, like it's not going to jump into your mouth and poison you. Like you have to actually <laughs> actively prepare it and eat it. And there's lots of chances to just say, actually, no, I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. So like there's really not a good reason that people should be um, accidentally poisoning yeah. themselves with plants. Yeah. That's good advice. I have a question actually just, it's mm-hmm. kind of related to this. What I know it's murky or different legally to do this everywhere. How e- how easy is it just to go outside and start foraging? Because I know there's different rules in three the the Three Rivers Park District has different rules than a different park will have than a different county will have. Is there a really good like resource guide that people can go to to know if it's legal for them to mm-hmm. to forge? Yeah, so I do have an article about this on my blog as well. <laughs> um, I should maybe check it again. There might be a few things that need updating, but yeah, usually like the county and city parks in general don't allow any kind of foraging. Um, Minneapolis has, okay. I could like rant about this, but <laughs> you <can> rant. <laughs> okay. Well, the city of Minneapolis parks, they allow some quote unquote harvesting of foods but not foraging. Like they have this whole page that's okay. like, you can't forage. Foraging is bad for the environment, but you can harvest, which is fine. 
And huh. it's like, why are you making this arbitrary distinction? <laughs> like, what is the distinction? Well, their definition is if you're foraging, then you're picking something like from the wild, essentially, like something that grew there on its own, like a okay. bird pooped out a seed or whatever and a plant grew. Um, and if you're harvesting, then you're picking something that was intentionally put there like for people yeah. to harvest. Okay. Um, so for example, there are some like, you know, cherry trees or apple trees are planted in different parts of the parks where you can just go and harvest them and eat them. And that's great. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, like on the list is also like Juneberry or serviceberry, which is a native shrub slash small tree. And you will see this like everywhere. It's like all over the Twin Cities. And it's really hard to tell, like, was this intentionally put here mm -hmm. for me to pick or was this just growing hair on its own, you know? And yeah. like, <laughs> so like, why is there that distinction? Or like mulberry is on the list. And the mulberries that we find in Minneapolis, almost all of them are the, um, they're considered invasive. They're white mulberry. So even though they produce red fruits, they're still in the species white mulberry, which is confusing. I understand that. Um, but so they're not actually planted by the park system because they're considered invasive. So if there's none that are planted, but it's on the list of things you can harvest and how can you harvest it if they're not, if by their definition, like it doesn't yeah. meet the guidelines of harvesting, quote unquote. Yeah. So it's just like, it makes no sense. I hate it. Is this, <laughs> I can understand why. Like I'm our, it's like our heads are spinning just here. So I imagine when you're, you're, you're out there trying to figure out what you can and can't take, it gets a little frustrating. Yeah. Um, so of course, you know, it probably goes without saying, but you know, we have listeners from all over the upper Midwest and, and beyond that. So just like you're going to want to do your due diligence with making sure you know what you're eating, do your due diligence to, to make sure you're following to the best of your ability, the, the regulations in your area would, I guess, be fair advice. And yep. Yeah, and I will say, like, Minnesota State Parks, you can legally forage uh, mushrooms and fruits for personal use. Okay. So as long as you're not selling them. Um, and again, you might want to look up the exact rules around that. Like, there might be some limits or something, mm -hmm. um, depending on where exactly you're looking. And, like, you know, state forests also, mm -hmm. again, usually mushrooms and fruits are totally fine to pick. Um like a lot of wildlife management areas like Carlos Avery is near here. You can pick fruits and mushrooms. Um, so yeah, generally like in a lot of areas, fruits, mushrooms, nuts, that kind of thing is fine. Yeah. But you should definitely double check. Yeah. You know. Make sure you're not on private property also. Yeah. If you're on private property, ask permission. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know what? Something I think, we, I think Travis and I talked about this on a previous episode, but so I was walking past a somebody in, in my neighborhood and saw chicken of the woods growing and they weren't outside and I just kind of like walked past and I was like, I'll go back. And then I went back and it, it, I no, it was still there. But in any case, Travis made a good point. He was like, you should knock on their door and say, Hey, by the way, you have this cool thing growing in your yard called chicken of the woods. And like a lot of people, I mean, you know, be, be smart about it, but a lot of people would probably be excited to learn that they have something like that. And you know, might say, yeah, go ahead and harvest it. And also you get to teach them something along the way. So. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've done that a lot with like mulberries and, you know, apples and pears. And a lot of times people have fruit trees in their yards and don't even use them. And will oftentimes even see them as like annoying because they fall to the ground and mm -hmm. make all this mess. So yeah. like rain on your car that's parked in the driveway or something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So almost every time that I've knocked on people's doors asking if I can pick something, they say yes. Yeah. And it's like a cool connection to make. Like sometimes people are into it and they'll chat you up about it. Sometimes they just like let you do your thing. But um, just like a couple times I've been told no, which is fine. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. That's why you <laughs> ask. Um, you know, so a lot of people that listen to this podcast are, you know, experienced or have interest in, in things like hunting and fishing. And I think that this, this whole aspect of foraging goes along with that so well. You know, you mentioned that kind of self-sufficiency aspect of it earlier. And I think it, it's kind of, you know, a trend, I think, these days, but for good reason. And I think anytime that, you know, we as humans can learn to do things on our own um, for, you know, our, our health or our survival, it's definitely a a good thing. And I think that this foraging thing, I feel like since I started getting interested in it a few years ago, I feel like more and more people are talking about it all the time, but yeah, winter foraging, definitely... I think you'd know better, but I think it's less well known. So hopefully people 
took a lot from it today. Yeah, no, foraging has definitely gotten a lot more popular, especially since the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I've been seeing more and more information about winter foraging and foraging for evergreen. Mm -hmm. So I think it's like slowly spreading. um, And yeah, I'm happy to be one of the people helping to do that. (laughs) You definitely are. And I got to say too, I'm pretty excited about some of the things that you mentioned. I thought when I was thinking about what you could get in the winter, I was thinking more of like the, on the medicinal aspect, which a lot of it is, but that spruce ice cream, the chai chaga, some things like that. I'm like, these are delicious things that, that people can hopefully enjoy too. Yeah, totally. So we are just about out of time. Before we let you go, we've mentioned your website a couple times. Um, but if you could just give a you know a little overview about what your website is and where else people can find you, um, and what you know resources you that um, you have online that people could use. Yeah. So my website is fourseasonforaging.com. and there's lots of stuff on there. There's a blog. There's an events page. There's like further reading pages you can explore on there there's <laughs> kind of a lot going on um but yeah in terms of other resources i always recommend sam thayer's books he has three books out right now and another book specifically about wild edible plant identification that's coming out in may and you can pre-order it now so i'm really excited for that um john callis is another good one he has one book out and again, another book that's going to be coming out later this year. Um, you know, you could go on like YouTube or TikTok. There's like a whole foraging TikTok. Um, you know, Black Forager is super popular and has really helped like push foraging more into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. So she's really great. Um, but yeah, we have a lot of great resources around here. Are you on social media? I am. Yes. Instagram and YouTube. Is that right? (laughs) So I am on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and I just started TikTok. Okay. Congratulations. (laughs) We'll definitely link to those, um, those outlets below. And thank you again for your time today. This was really fun. I'm definitely eager to get out there. And I think some people listening are too. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's it for today. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time with Travis on the next episode of Do North Outdoors.